Ah, oh, jeez. Another long episode? You're darn right. When this guest wants to talk, you let him talk. This is the Veteran Wargamer. This is the Veteran Wargamer. I am your host, Jay Arnold. Welcome to episode 11. In this episode, I speak with Henry Hyde about balancing playability and realism in our games. Of course, we are brought to you by Kings Hobbies and Games, purveyor of fine gaming and hobby products. Um, just wanted to highlight a couple things that Kings Hobbies and Games sells that you may not be aware of. In addition to the painting classes that I mentioned in the last episode, and in addition to the special artisan service miniatures and 3D printing products that I've mentioned numerous times in the past, Kings Hobbies and Games provides a well-rounded variety of painting supplies for the beginner, intermediate, and advanced painter. Uh, we're talking ammo by MIG, acrylic sets, weathering sets, books, leaves, and plants for your basing. Badger Airbrush Company. I use a Badger Airbrush myself. I highly, highly recommend getting one of those. Uh, broken toad brushes, uh, scale 75 paints, secret weapon washes and glazes, uh, Vallejo paints, if you're not using Vallejo paints you you need to get into them, uh, and of course also the Windsor and Newton Series 7 brushes, so fine supplies, really high quality. It's the poor carpenter that blames his tools, but the supplies that you can get with Kings Hobbies and Games are gonna will take you from being an okay painter to a good painter, and if you're a good painter it'll take you up the next step to being a great painter. So check those out. That's kingshobbiesandgames.com. And you can check out the various uh, painting supplies that Tim sells there. Up next, my chat with Henry. And now we're back. I am, of course... Speaking today with famed magazine editor and now Wargame book author, Henry Hyde. Henry, how are you today? I'm fine, thank you, Jay. It's a real pleasure to be here. Well, it's it's just, I'm pleased as punch to have you on today. Um, anyone who's listened to any of the, the better Wargaming podcasts have, have heard you speak before, and it's, it's really great that you're able to come on the Veteran Wargamer today. I've been dying to. I mean, I'm so pleased for you that you took the decision to get this podcast going and that it's been doing well for you. Uh, I think it's fantastic. You know, I'm I'm happy to encourage anyone who wants to actually kind of take a step forward and volunteer to do something that's to the benefit of the hobby. And I'm, you know, fantastic, Jay. And also the fact that you've got a very specific kind of uh vibe for this podcast doing you know your own military service and obviously as you know i'm very interested in the welfare and well-being of veterans of you know the british armed forces as well so i i just think it's you know as soon as you mentioned that you were going to be doing this podcast jay uh i was all for it fantastic i'm really pleased for you it's doing so well well thank you very much well and it stands to reason because i mean you are one of the inspirations for this podcast um, I remember a blog post you wrote where basically you said if you want to do a gaming blog or a gaming website or a gaming anything, just get off your butt and do it. And that's that's pretty <laughs> much what happened. I thought, I, I want to do a podcast and then farmed out the idea to a, a good friend of mine and 
he said, yeah, go ahead and do it. And I kicked the idea around with him for the name. He said, yeah, get on, get it on Twitter, get on, uh, get an email address, get it reserved. And 24 hours later, I was recording my first episode. Yeah, it's fantastic. So, I think that that's one of the fabulous things about uh, modern technology is that it is so enabling, isn't it? it yeah. You can have an idea and then produce the thing within 24 hours. I, I, I remember when I was first starting doing Battle Games magazine. So that's, I mean, we're only talking just over 10 years ago. So that was, what, 2006. Mm -hmm. And man, the grind you had to go through getting print quotes and, and distribution uh, estimates. And, you know, d because everything was, was governed by the print process as it was back in 2006. Right. Uh, and it was really quite a laborious task. And that's why initially, certainly, Battle Games was bi-monthly, because I realized the amount of work involved, not just in putting the magazine together, but then the actual production process of that magazine mm -hmm. and the distribution process. Man, these things take time. And as a one-man band, I suppose it was remarkable. I managed to bring it out roughly every two months, right. uh, let alone monthly. Um, whereas now, of course, with short-run digital printing, where where, you know, you could even have a single copy of a magazine printed if that's what you wanted. Right. I mean, per item, it's still fairly expensive, but you could literally have one or two or ten copies of your magazine printed. Right. And right. then with the advent of digital technology, which means that you can bring out ebooks and podcasts and, and videos and stuff within, well, even within minutes, not even hours nowadays, uh, and and have things playing instantly online, you know, with Facebook Live, that kind of stuff. Yeah. It's quite extraordinary. And so, you know, when I think back to when I started Battle Games, and, and of course there were people who did raise the question of, well, who the hell's Henry Hyde? Who's he? <laughs> How dare he produce a magazine? Who does he think he is? <laughs> right? there, there, you do sometimes get that kind of reaction. Um, the thing is, though, if you listen to that kind of criticism, man, it, it will it will it will do your head in. You know, right. you, you can't let you can't let criticism stop you from having a go. If you have a go and it doesn't work out, well, fair enough. You know, at least you had a go. Yeah. Whereas yeah. my feeling was, well, why shouldn't I be the one mm -hmm. to start a magazine? Because there wasn't a magazine out there at the time that fitted precisely what I wanted you know, on a regular basis from any magazine. So right. in, a, in a sense, it was kind of a, you know, probably a bit like you you starting your own, own podcast. Now, if all the other podcasts out there satisfied your gaming needs in terms of podcasts, you'd probably think, well, actually, there's no point. I, I'm getting everything I need from these other people. Whereas if you're, uh, you know, a, a, a person with a creative bone in your body, as I know you are, you do have this feeling that, well, you know, yeah, there's a bit of that and a bit of this, but actually, I've I've got this other idea. I've got this other kind of car that I'd like to drive. Really, that's slightly different from these other cars. And you can, nowadays you can do it. You can build your own car, as it were, and drive it off. And here you are. Before you know it, you're right. producing a regular podcast, and people are saying, "Oh, have you listened to Jay's podcast?" And you're saying interesting things. You're in interviewing interesting people, and it becomes a focal point of attention. And so, as I found with Battle Games, it kind of 
creates its own momentum, doesn't it? Right. You know, you, you suddenly find, hang on a minute, am I driving this car or is this car driving me? <laughs> well, with yeah, that's very, very true with my release schedule. You know, I, I shoot for late Thursday night in, in the U.S. or early Friday morning uh, yeah. in U.K. and Europe. And I think that, you know, it's it's definitely gotten to the point where, okay, get the kids to bed uh, Tuesday by nine thirty on Tuesday I'm doing my, you know my rough edit or maybe Wednesday at the latest, and then mm. Thursday it's it's all edited so now all I got you know all I have to do is record my bumpers and make sure my show notes are right and start the relatively laborious process of uploading yeah. the damn thing, <clears throat> but uh, without without getting too far uh, behind the curtain uh, I I think we should go ahead and and get jabbering about what we came here to jabber and <laughs> yeah. and Henry for those who for those who don't know you I'm, I'm going to ask the uh, perennial question here on the veteran wargamer what makes you a veteran wargamer um it's fairly simple and I think yeah any anyone's who's read my book is probably sick of hearing this but <clears throat> um my dad when I was a young boy um so and he died when I was 10. So we're talking about, I was probably about five, six, seven years old. He made me a toy fort and he uh, bought me some little toy soldiers. I remember they were little plastic British guardsmen. And for some reason, and I'll always remember this, I can't, how they were manufactured like this or why, I don't know, but the heads would come off. <laughs> they had this little, the heads were on a little spike. I suppose the heads might've been interchangeable. That was the idea and they would- Different hats, I'm sure. Yeah, something like that. But anyway, the uh, toy fort with some of these toy soldiers, and then obviously in the late 1960s, the airfix figures were coming out, the 172nd scale airfix figures. So I was buying oh, all sorts of things, lots of World War II stuff. So the Africa Corps and German infantry and British infantry and Japanese infantry, and um, as well as playing with my toy fort, I used to play out in the garden as well. We had a, a garden at our home in Western on sea where I was uh, brought up and uh, I would dig little trenches and put my airfix men in the little trenches and I had my Sherman tanks and Panzer fours and stuff so these were very free flowing free form games before I ever rolled a dice in Ang you know mm -hmm. I, I had no idea of rules um, and then it was probably <clears throat> Um, in the very late 1960s, I became aware of, well, you know, I'm getting a bit bored with just kind of rolling marbles at stuff. And I started making up my own rules for things. But it was actually the year my dad died, 1971, <clears throat> that I read my first proper War Games book, which was The War Game by Charles Grant. Mm -hmm. And it had just been published. Uh, now, if anyone, oh, the, yeah, there's no point holding it up to the camera because this is just a, a sound-only show. But I've got a copy on my shelf. In fact, I've got two copies on my shelf there. The War Game by Charles Grant, uh, the late Charles Grant, not to be mistaken with the current Charles Grant, who's uh, who's junior, Charles Grant Junior, really, Charles Stuart Grant, <clears throat> but Charles Grant, his father. Uh, had been in the RAF in World War II and was one of that kind of one of the founding fathers of the modern hobby, along with people like Don Featherstone, Tony Barth, and others. Right. And this book, The War Game, was fascinating for two, well, a number of reasons for me. First of all, it was the first time I'd read a book 
where there were specific rules for playing war games. So infantry would march six inches in line, seven and a half inches in column, nine inches when charging. Uh, heavy cavalry would move nine inches normally or a 12 inch, what was called a battle move or 18 inch charge. Light cavalry, 12 inches or 18 inches. Uh, the artillery, the famous bounce sticks. You've probably heard me yeah, talking about yeah. bounce sticks over the years, Jay, where um, <clears throat> you'd literally cut, cut a piece of, you know, quarter inch baton uh, that was six feet long and mark the various ranges on it so close medium and long range and you'd roll a dice to see which section of the baton your round shot had landed in uh, and then work out what casualties would call were called you had uh, you had other devices as well like um, how it's a burst circle so you'd actually I remember I, I used an old coat hanger, I think, to begin with. So you you cut out some wire from an old coat hanger and make a circle that was like four inches across with a smaller two-inch circle inside with some little rods off. And again, you'd roll a dice to see which section of the circle the, the, the howitzer shell had burst in and so on. And to me, this was, wow, this is a revelation. Wow. You know, the, and one of the lovely things about Charles Grant was that he included a lot of what nowadays I think wargamers are used to calling fluff. Right. But right. it was actually almost kind of archaeological historical research, <clears throat> excuse me, that Charles Grant had done to kind of back up. You know, I hadn't just, I didn't just think of an infantry move as six inches. This is the reason why one inch equals 10 yards on the table and a move represents one minute. And therefore I've consulted the drill books of the 18th century. And, you know, they marched at an average of whatever it was, 110 paces per minute. And the pace is two feet long and therefore do the maths and you end up with well in a minute on level ground this is how far they would move you know the 60 yards but of course if they're traveling uphill they would move slower or if they're crossing obstacles and you know to a, a young guy who's used to playing in the garden or on the on the lounge carpet at home right. just making things up as you go along god this is so you divide the game into moves you don't just shout at your buddy who you're playing with ha ha my man's outflanked you and he shot you you know <laughs> well let, let's be honest you do that anyway now <laughs> now that's telling joe that's a secret well, uh, anyway. well let's be honest there's there's not a person listening to this podcast who's ever played wings of glory and not gone daka 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 <laughs> yeah quite but that's the thing, you know, so it, it was this transition. So we're talking about the 1971. I mean, I can be quite, quite specific about, you know, my, my, my childhood as far as wargaming is concerned ended in 1971, you know. Mm. Uh, and from that point on, you know, because I discovered this book in the local library. And then when I had to, I, obviously, like most kids at the time, I, w I renewed that book time after time after time. There must have been a queue of other boys <laughs> waiting to see a copy of that book. And then when they finally saw it, there was just this huge long list of stamps that the librarian had put in, you know, uh, that were all my borrowing the book almost permanently, you know. Uh, but I, of course, they started bringing other books. So I suddenly I discovered, oh, books by Don Featherstone. 
And Don Featherstone, another English writer, of course, had started writing, uh, you know, books. His first book uh, was actually in the early 1960s. The, uh, you know, the war game, uh, Don Featherstone's book uh, was in the early 1960s. So this, again, was a revelation. So people have been doing this for ages, I discovered, you know. So there was this whole community out there that I suddenly realized was, was there. And... Uh, as a result of something I saw in the back of the war game book, there, I was told, oh, there's a magazine called Military Modeling uh, that was available at the time, which had just started to have kind of war gaming material in it. And and I think, you know, it, uh, one of the things that makes me a veteran war gamer is also being one of those early adopters of uh, reading the magazines like Military Modeling mm -hmm. and discovering, wow, there are people advertising war games miniatures there there are companies out there making these miniatures and discovering the actual miniatures that had been used by charles grant for the photographs in the war game <clears throat> those miniatures were produced by a company called spencer smith miniatures which remarkably is still going today right, right. nowadays it's owned by a guy called peter johnson uh, the difference being that back in the 1970s, those miniatures, there's a classic marching musketeer, which is kind of uh, almost symbolic of my early experience of wargaming, the Spencer Smith marching musketeer. Um, they were originally cast in plastic, and it was an awful plastic. And I, I, I know it's really bad because nowadays, I mean, I've, I've got a collection of many hundreds, probably thousands of the original plastic Spencer Smith. Okay. Uh, and they are the plastic is corroding oh. the plastic is basically becoming very very brittle um on many of them and on some batches it's not so bad and i've i've no idea the the, the guy ronald w spencer smith the guy who was originally producing them he was an old cove just casting these things out in his shed in the back garden, you know. Uh -huh. And and God knows what he was putting into this compound to cast these <laughs> miniatures, you know. I have no idea. I just have this vision of this guy in a shed wearing a World War II gas mask <laughs> and rubber gloves, big thick rubber gloves, you know, cast pouring this awful brown goop into these moulds. Uh, and let's just say the moulds are obviously weren't terribly precise yeah uh, there some of the casting is a bit how can i say approximate uh but they have a charm all of their own right, you know right. and and i think this is also you know the, kind of leading on to the final aspect of, of this um the those uh, charles grant in that original book the war game he was the first person i come across who created completely fictitious nations to play his war games mm. so it's very recognizable that the the, the the battles in his book were based on the mid uh, 18th century um, battles between the British and the French and the Prussians and the Austrians so the wars of the Austrian succession and the Seven Years War uh, which is a period I still love and I'm passionate about but um, instead of just saying that these were this is the prussian army and this is the austrian army oh no charles grant and his son charles came up with the notion that oh no this is the vereinigte freie Städte, who who were sort of the prussians right. and the grand duchy of lorraine who were the austrians or they could be the french sometimes because they, they wore white coats and the austrians and the french both wore white coats you know and so 
they he'd invented these countries and drew completely fictitious maps of the kind that you're more used to if you're a fan of fantasy literature mm-hmm. you know i think this is one of those things that <clears throat> um you know even when we talk about realism versus playability we'll probably come back to this notion that you can fight and let's put it firmly in hist- in, in inverted commas historical war games right. but in a totally fictitious setting um and this is the fir- again the first time i'd sort of encountered this um because it seemed you know some people say oh that's terribly childish well i don't think it's childish but it is pleasantly childlike and and it rang a bell with me because of course when i was playing on the carpenter in the garden with my soldiers i wasn't really bothered about you know you know did this lump in in our back garden actually look like tobruk when i had my british eighth army and africa corps figures out there no it just stood for you know the real battle of tobruk or 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 the battle Battle of el alamein or whatever it happened to be um and so i found it rather charming and very engaging all the way back then that this guy who was a very learned very erudite highly intelligent man should be perfectly happy to invent opponents to fight out battles which still looked historical right you know the outcomes were still historical um so yeah that's kind of what makes me a veteran war game is that my pedigree in in playing with toy soldiers goes back at least to 1971 when i started playing proper in inverted commas war games you know with rules with dice uh with rulers with bounce sticks and all those kind of things but also you know like most boys before that of that generation uh i'd been brought up with a father who'd fought in the war himself he was in the fleet air arm and had made me toy forts and bought me toy soldiers and stuff you know nominally for me but of course he loved doing it you know he he was the one who actually made most of the tanks and the model aircraft and stuff so anyway so that's you know you asked me the question (laughs) what makes me a veteran war gamer you know if if 1971 won't do it mate i don't think anything will (laughs) before most of your listeners were born well certainly before i was born that's that's for sure um I'd like to talk about the whole imaginations concept at length with you, of course, in the future. Sure. Um, I think there's a certain there's a certain value to it, especially with uh, kind of like SCA, you know, Society for Creative Anachronisms. Yeah, yeah. It it allows you to study a period and recreate the positive aspects of that period, and yeah. conveniently sidestep a lot of the. Uh, I guess social uh, sensibilities, yeah, involved. So, um, but that's that's for another time. What? Yeah, sure. What we're talking about today is realism versus playability, and yeah. I think there's some real there's some real heavy discussion that that can take place about this, and we could probably go on for some time. Uh, so I think we just need to jump in, and I guess the first thing we need to do is what do we mean by realism in a war game? And yeah, yeah. you know, I think what I what I define as realism in a war game is: Are you as a player able to make decisions that 
follow the decisions that the actual commander on the field would have to make. And that's about as far as it goes. To me, the uh, it's the decision-making process behind what you're doing that matters, not necessarily how those decisions get interpreted and uh, acted upon. Does that make sense? Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Um, and I'm glad you decided that we should start with, you know, what do we actually mean by realism and also what do we mean by playability, I suppose. Um, for me, realism uh, in, encompasses a number of things. Or shall we say the after so many years in the hobby listening to how, what other people think of as realism in war games it covers quite a, a wide range of things i mean to some people uh realism also encompasses what the game looks like mm -hmm. so you could say uh well you know how accurately are the uniforms of the 35th foot painted in that war game and that's unfortunately where you get the kind of button counting mentality right. of the people who lean over your shoulder at a show and go i think you'll find <laughs> that there should only be three buttons on the cuff there not four and we're talking about a 15 millimeter figure you know so there's that kind of realism in terms of the portrayal of the troops in the action. The obviously the scenery as well. You know how accurately is the scenery of a particular battle presented right. on the tabletop? Right. Well, well, that leads to questions that you see on online forums, such as, oh, "What colors the grass in Andalusia in, in May?" Yeah. Absolutely, <laughs> absolutely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, hang on. But but was it raining the day before? Because yeah. obviously the soil would be slightly darker. You know, I, I let's think, get it right. I think for the sanity of 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 us and the listener, we should probably <laughs> probably yeah. stick to the mechanisms of the rules and the yeah, probably. The I mean, there, there is. I think um, where I would sort of. Um, kind of flag it up as uh, potentially being important I mean I think that the, the accuracy of the painting of the figures is neither here nor there because that comes under if you like the aesthetics of the game and one person's aesthetics can be very different from someone else's you know one person is perfectly happy with their troops being painted toy soldier style with gloss paints whereas someone else you know wants to layer on all the kind of different uh, you know highlights and shading and things that only things that glossy should be glossy and all that kind of stuff so that's kind of comes under aesthetic where um where uh, if you like the portrait the actual representation of a his supposedly historical battle say becomes important is obviously things <clears throat> like um if you are recreating say the battle of waterloo let's stick with the battle of waterloo because everyone's heard of the battle of waterloo right um it, it is important that the topography the landscape is uh if you if you want to be able to claim historical accuracy with your game the battlefield itself needs to be portrayed as accurately as you can make it right uh and the and also importantly the the miniature troops you're using on the tabletop should occupy the amount of ground that the real troops occupied historically sure. i mean one of the things that 
uh, you know, uh, playability versus realism. One of the things when it comes to realism that we almost always as war gamers find ourselves having to make a compromise is especially in the depth that our formations of troops occupy mm. on the tabletop. Right. Because when we think, for example, of the horse and musket period, you know, where people are commonly playing with a ground scale of, let's say, one millimeter equals one yard or <clears throat> one inch equals 10 yards, something like that. You know, I mean, goodness me, you're a military man yourself. If you line up two ranks of guys on the parade ground, they don't take up an awful lot of depth. They may, you know, if you've got uh, 600 guys, you know, if you allow sort of shoulder room of couple of couple of feet per per individual, right? You know, mm -hmm. you can do some maths and work out that right at the width of an average regiment should be in the region of I don't know 100 and something yards, right? The actual depth that they occupy is very shallow indeed. Right. What right. six, eight feet, something like that. If that, particularly when you're in, if that, if that, particularly when you're in close order. What we come up against when, as when we're playing with miniatures that we paint beautifully and we like nice basing and ground effects and that kind of stuff is, you know, two ranks of miniatures takes up let's say forty millimeters, right? Now forty millimeters in our ground scale is forty yards, right? <laughs> right. Now that means that you can't have as many units squished up against one another in a game as you could in reality and those units take up far more space than they would do in reality right now this is one of those things where you know when we come back to play you know specifically playability versus realism actually almost unconsciously that's already a compromise we're making right taking us away from reality towards playability we say well you know even if we mounted our troops in a single rank of miniatures that's still you know 20 millimeters which is 20 yards or whatever but actually aesthetically we don't like having just a single rank of miniatures on the table right. when we see a british line or a french line and they're meeting and exchanging musketry we like it We'd like to be given the impression that we're looking at a real unit in action, which would be at least two ranks deep. Now, as it happens, the French and sometimes the Austrians and Russians fought in three, four ranks deep occasionally, particularly, you know, when you go back to the 18th century, you might even see troops fighting five ranks deep, you know. And however, we in our heads we go well that would be absurd wouldn't it to have five ranks of miniatures and think of the expense right <laughs> right um, well i i think so, the last the last two or three minutes um of audio here we really need to package it nicely and sell it to uh, peter barry <laughs> of back of six millimeter because you you've made a compelling case for using six and even uh three millimeter figures well, absolutely. I mean, this is one of those uh, things that has been going on. I mean, I've seen some people doing it. And I, you know, I made a decision because I, I, I have a lot of backers figures. I'm not saying they're all painted yet, Jay, but I have a lot of backers figures, right? Oh, there, there are bags of backers <laughs> figures here in my basement that, uh, yeah, <laughs> less but said about is, that, the better. I know. 
But this is, I mean, I, I, the point you're making is an extremely valid one. If people really want to have that kind of a bird's eye view of a real battle going on with, you know, actual numbers of men occupying proper, you know, having a proper footprint on the battlefield, as it were, you know, micro miniatures, three, six, ten mil miniatures, man, that's the way to go. And a, a lot of gamers have been doing that and it looks glorious. You know, yeah. to, to my eye, but in any case, I certainly think that for people who are playing sort of fifteen millimeter and up, and certainly twenty eight millimeter, you're already making that compromise in your head of well, yes, I want this battle to feel realistic, but I like twenty eight mil miniatures, and I like to have say thirty six men in a unit, and therefore I want them two ranks deep, and so I'll kind of squint and overlook the fact that I've already compromised on the reality right. of this. So that's kind of the first thing that a lot of uh, gamers who claim that their war games are very realistic, mm, certain amount of hypocrisy, perhaps, right. creeping well, the, in there. If, they're, if they're someone just... if, if someone really wants to say that their that their games are you know supremely realistic, I think the first question you need to ask them is, well, did you have breakfast? Yeah. Did you have breakfast? Did you just walk thirty miles to get here? Yeah. You know, are you looming the prospect of of death in the face? And Absolutely. Yeah. You know, by I I don't want to say it's a canard, but it's it's kind of a maybe it's the impossible dream. Maybe realism in a war game is the impossible dream and yeah. we need to pick and choose what aspects of the experience we're really wanting <laughs> to recreate. And yeah. I think at the end of the day, the best way to do that, well, again, this is just my opinion. I think what you're looking for in most cases is simply replicating the decisions that the actual leader or commander on the field has to make. And yeah, I mean, to me, I, I mean, I, I would agree with that. I think that the kind of decisions that the commander has to make, that's a, a crucial point. For me, it's also, I mean, the, the way I approach it is, uh, first of all, a war game, it's a game, right? right. It, the clue's in the name. <laughs> it's a game. And however, it is perfectly possible that you can play a game uh, based on a historical battle or even a completely made up battle where the, the way you judge its realism is, was the outcome of that game plausible? Right, absolutely. And I think this is the thing where actually realism is not necessarily the word we want to be using. It's almost kind of plausibility is is kind of more the thing as far as I'm concerned. Did, did I come away from that game thinking like, yeah, actually, I can believe that that would have happened under those circumstances? And, and also, what's also... Uh, part of this is and we can probably talk about some specific game systems in a minute but do I feel as though I either won or lost that game because of my decisions as a commander or because of luck or because the mechanisms of the game either made it impossible for me to lose or impossible to win Right. or very extremely difficult and and this is where yeah, I know in the show notes you use the word friction right <laughs> we can talk about friction in a minute because 
I think there's for for every war gamer, there's something along that sliding scale, isn't there? From effectively what you've done is you've produced a diorama of the Battle of Waterloo and just moved the troops according to the historical record. So as you might see at a museum display, you know, right. when they're doing a live display. So, oh yes, and at one o'clock, Durlon's corps advanced towards the, the farm of La Haye Saint and this is what happened and the Grand Battery did this and then the Union Brigade charged and that happened and you're just kind of shuffling the troops across the table but it's not really a game on the one hand to the other end of the scale where basically you're just kind of you're playing monopoly right you're throwing dice or drawing cards and that's deciding everything um so some all of us as wargamers find ourselves somewhere along that scale which is also why there's no one fixed set of wargames rules is it no. it's not like chess <laughs> and it doesn't matter what set of rules you can pick off a shelf and you know my shelf over there i must have two or three hundred different sets of rules for different periods i've no idea but i could pick two sets of napoleonic rules off the shelf and they're obviously they the intention is they're they're wanting to portray the same thing the right. same period of history the same forces involved maybe even using the same figure scale and ground scale and that kind of stuff but as games they play very differently indeed you know this guy over here <clears throat> might have read the books and thought well actually it really should be infantry that has the primacy and so basically the infantry seem to be you know to cope more easily with situations than in this other set of rules whereas this other guy believes oh no it's cavalry's the thing you know i love commanding cavalry i like nothing better than a heavy cavalry charge and i think you know they should be given primacy on the battlefield so it's because you know and i did a history degree man history is all about interpretation right what the fact you know two, two people can look at the same supposed fact in inverted commas but interpret them quite differently and of course when you look at the historical record the first thing you need to ask is who's the guy writing this account of the battle of the waterloo oh he was french was he mm, he's going to feel slightly different about right. things than the guy on the other side of the field you know right uh, so. a, a cavalry man who's very aristocratic and you know thinks the infantry are scum is going to write very differently from a guy who was brought up from the ranks you know in in the 95th rifles kind of thing so uh this all affects you know what we think of as realism our own opinion of what is a realistic war game is informed by and influenced by the stuff that we've read right. and the other people that we play with over the years you know what's the stuff they read you know this is this is why it's an endlessly fascinating hobby in the same right. way that psychology is an endlessly fascinating subject but you know when it comes to um you know realism in a game i'm i'm with you in the sense that i want to f i want to feel that i as a player am able to make decisions that are in accord with the level of command that the game is claiming to portray right because I think this is important as well. There's there's an awful lot of rule sets, aren't there, Jay? That 
you not only are making the grand tactical decisions of, right, I want to advance that division on the right, right. flank, you're also the guy saying, oh, quick, form square, form square with right, that right, individual right. battalion. No, I, I think even... that's, that, that's a very valid point because in our games, we need to define command level as yeah. a writer. You know, as a rules writer, we need to define what our command level is yeah. so that we are making sure that our players are making those decisions appropriate to the command level being portrayed. And yeah. that kind of that dovetails into, you know, the question about playability because that has yeah. a huge factor in whether or not something is playable because if I'm well before I before I go down that that particular rabbit trail I think we need to define command level. To me command yeah. level means the level like if if I'm playing a quote unquote platoon level game. To me that means that I am playing a game where I am the platoon leader or platoon commander depending on the doctrinal yeah. terminology you want to use. So yeah. for example chain of command is a platoon level game. Yep. Uh, Star Grunt from Ground Zero Games is a platoon level game. Yeah. Uh, unfortunately, we don't have a standard lexicon, so some people think that a platoon level game is a game where a platoon is the smallest discrete unit that you use in a game. Yeah. So when I see a, a <laughs> rule set that says, you know, for example, regimental fire and fury. Okay, well, what does that mean? Does that mean I'm a regimental commander, or am yeah, I using yeah. regiments as the smallest discrete unit? I think it's yeah. I think it's the latter in that particular case. No. Um, because regular, I believe regular fire and fury is uh, brigade. Uh, you're playing with brigades as the smallest unit, if I recall correctly. Yeah. But uh, so your so your thought on on that particular definition. Oh, well, I'm with you. I, I mean, Chain of Command is obviously a game we can talk about at some length, I would have thought. Um, that's definitely what I would call a platoon-level game because you are your role in the game is that of the guy commanding the platoon. Right. You have no knowledge or command ability above that level. You can call in artillery from you know, the regiment behind the line somewhere. Right. <clears throat> but basically you are that senior sergeant or lieutenant or whatever down there in the trenches trenches with bullets whizzing around your ears, right? Right. Um whereas a lot of games are so let me before I move on from that, let's say so that I think is what most people would define as a skirmish level game. Right. You know, if we wanted an expression that most people would recognize rather than platoon level, if you said skirmish level, I think, although a lot of skirmish level games could even be kind of squad level, right. I think most people will sort of understand that you're talking about, well, all right, that means I've got no more than 20 or 30 miniatures on the table kind of thing. Um, and maybe a vehicle or two trundling around. And that's it, you know. And effectively, the ground scale is <clears throat> is is real. You know, it's one to one, more or less. You know, you're certainly in chain of command. One of the things that surprises a lot of people is that uh, the range of a weapon is as far as it can see, right. which is the entire length of the table. You know, I think with uh, a lot of people that who are more used to other game systems where oh a rifle fires 24 inches and the sniper <laughs> can maybe do 36 kind of thing right. and you've got this 
uh, won't necessarily mention any rule sets by name and this, but um, an odd situation where, <clears throat> let's say you were refighting the Battle of Pegasus Bridge and a submachine <laughs> gun wouldn't be able to fire from one end of the bridge to the other. <laughs> Right, as has been mentioned on another podcast, I think. Uh, that's kind of absurd, isn't it? You know, you go to all the trouble of getting, and here you go, here's that word again, realistic terrain. Right. So you've right. really built up, you know, that terrain around Pegasus Bridge or the Bridge at Arnhem or whatever. <clears throat> and then you find that actually the rules won't allow you to do what the men in real life were able to do. Right. Well, that's just absurd. Right, right? absolutely. And um, <clears throat> more to that point, uh, you know, as as our imaginary platoon leader in, on Pegasus Bridge, you know, the I, I think a lot of people that write rules get bogged down in trying to model processes and decisions at too low a level. For example, yeah. in Chain of Command, you don't have individual figures as discrete elements. You have a fire team. Yeah. And guess what, folks? doctrinally speaking that is appropriate for a platoon leader to know what's going on two yeah. levels down so platoon leader he's got his squad leaders or section leaders but then yeah. he's also got uh, fire teams and that's two levels down now yeah. to my mind a skirmish game is where a an individual figure is the smallest discrete unit Right. So you're talking squad or section level command, effectively. <coughs> yeah. And yeah. there, I think, what bog a lot of games down is, like I said, is they're trying to model processes and decisions at too low a level. There's the, uh, I guess, it's the battle group rules. Um, yeah. From Plastic Soldier Company, is that correct? Yeah, Iron Fist Publishing. Yeah. Yeah, and I have no direct experience with them. I haven't read them, but I understand that you keep track of ammo for each individual vehicle. Yep. And we have a cat. That's okay. <laughs> well, the cat's very vocal about its uh, opposition to what I'm saying, so I didn't know I didn't know the cat was a uh, was an yeah. iron fist uh, <laughs> aficionado. But uh, no, it's, you know, I guess with battle group you're probably like what a platoon platoon leader or platoon not platoon. Yeah, something uh, like that. A, is it that low? Is I think it's actually a bit higher than that. I, I guess I'm not saying I'm saying platoon, but I mean battalion, company or battalion level, maybe. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, you're you're not going to be concerned with ammo counts. You know, individual round ammo counts. It's going to be, do you, and even you know, selecting the type of round being fired. You know, yeah, yeah. you need to, you you need to let your platoon leaders run their platoons and let your tank crews run their tanks and let them select yeah. the, the appropriate ammo for yeah. the situation at hand. And there's there's plenty of examples of games that that try to inject quote-unquote realism by inserting these processes that, yes, these are some of the processes that these folks go through when they're fighting a battle, mm. but it's not appropriate for a brigade or division-level commander to worry about Absolutely. whether or not that platoon is in a, you know, a a column of wedges or they're in line or if they're yeah. in a, in a ranger file, you know, that's, yeah, that doesn't matter. You just have to assume that they're doing what's appropriate at that level at that time. But and, here's the thing. And, you, <clears throat> and as someone who, as you know, 
having written a set of rules, shut yes. steel and stone, that went into my book. Um, I was very aware of these kind of problems that ideally, as a rules writer, you should select the, the appropriate command level and write a game that the players, that confine the players to that command level, right? So if, if, if it's a divisional level Napoleonic game, you shouldn't be making any decisions that a divisional commander in a Napoleonic battle wouldn't be making, right? However, there's on the playability side of things, and this is where experience of wargaming and wargamers come in, I know full well that I would probably say the vast majority of the wargamers I know don't want that. They understand the, they understand that problem, but in fact, as well as being Napoleon, they also want to be the guy telling that company to open fire. And also more than that, they want to be the guy deciding at what range that yeah. unit should open fire. You know, should you can you be the guy who, as well as making this brilliant outflanking maneuver with a couple of divisions, <clears throat> is also the one in the front rank saying, Now wait till you see the whites of their eyes, boys. Right. <laughs> steady, steady fire, right? Because again, it comes back to the history. Oh, and this is where we could go off in a whole other direction. There's probably another podcast with in the word history, there's the word story. story. Yeah. So right there, there we go. It's the word story is in there. And this is what I would say probably most war gamers actually get wrapped up in. And, and it overrides, to my mind, the realism principle. Because you've, you've, you have got these two very strong pulls in opposite directions. You've got the, yes, I want to be Napoleon. I want to be the one... And this is where the collecting come in, comes in, you know. Why is it that people like me collect thousands upon thousands upon thousands of little miniature soldiers? It's because it's the Napoleon principle. Look at my armies! Look how big my army is! I've, you know, it'd be, you know that in the average game, <clears throat> you know, a dozen battalions is going to be more than enough. So why have I collected 120 battalions, yeah. right? <laughs> I, I would say most of all gamers I know have this kind of overkill principle. You can never have too many miniatures in your collection because you never know right. when that opportunity might arise to, you know, use all of them. Or, as often happens, well, if I'm portraying the Battle of Vittoria as opposed to the Battle of Busaco in the Peninsula War, when well, I know that these specific regiments were at that battle as opposed to those specific regiments at that, that battle. So in order to refight both battles, I need all those regiments. You know, I, back in the early days of Wargaming, one of the charming things was that people kind of, they didn't really care. Yeah, the Scots Greys turned up all over the place. <laughs> <laughs> right? Why did they turn up all over the place? Because everybody loved the Scots Greys, because we'd all, you know, seen the film Waterloo or read right. about the charge of the Scots Greys at Waterloo. And so, of course, you know, miniature figurines and 
you know, even the plastic manufacturers, Eshi or Revel or whoever they are, they make a box of Scots Greys. So of course, you're going to have the Scots Greys in your army, and if they're in your army, you're going to use them. Were they actually present at the Battle of Victoria? No, they weren't. <laughs> Were they actually present at any other battle apart from Waterloo? Pretty much no. I yeah. mean, this is one of the startling things about that particular unit. But, you know, Scots Greys, Highlanders, the 95th Rifles, all these, we, the, the Imperial Guard, if you're a French player. I mean, one of the things that, you know, coming back to realism, when you're a newcomer comes into the hobby, right? And so they, they ask you, oh, so um, uh, if I'm starting out in the hobby, what are the units I should collect first? And so you say, oh, yes, well, you should probably collect, you know, three or four battalions of French line infantry, maybe a battalion of light infantry, some chasseurs, maybe some dragoons. And they're looking at this game they've seen at a show. Well, hang on a minute. I like those lovely Imperial Guard. I want some of those. <laughs> so the vast majority of wargamers that I know, when they're starting out in Napoleonics, one of the first units they buy and paint up is the French Imperial Guard, right? right. You know, or the Scots Greys or whatever it is. And so, you know, I think this is one of those interesting things that the story, but wh why do we collect those units? Why do we, because the story around those units in effect overrides the history of the higher scale higher level battle right because the way that history was so often written it is you know well okay the the, the, the guns have done their cannonade and then the, the bugle sound and and these famous units charged into the fray and defeated right, right. the enemy <clears throat> and i think therefore there's always this kind of conflict between the the story of certain uh specific units in a battle and if you like the abstracted command decisions that led to that situation mm. and uh, you know okay so here's a game that you and i both play a lot of commands and colors yes okay yes. <clears throat> now commands and colors um Interestingly, and practice is easier to do in a board game than in a miniatures game. Commands and Colors quite successfully abstracts the battle so that you are, by and large, making the kind of command decisions that um, certainly, you know, a, the general or a divisional commander would be making. Actually, it's really quite rarely that Commands and Colours asks you to make those kind of grunt-level decisions that are down and dirty, you know, in the smoke and the dust, that many other miniatures rule sets would ask you to make. Right. But it, it, it does achieve that level of abstraction that most miniatures games struggle with. Now, I would say I've got some certain other complaints about the commands and color system that can lead to frustrations, but you know that that's something for for later. But I think when you're um, talking about realism, we you know this is why it's it's not an easy question, is it? No. It's because you are dealing with this conflict between wanting to achieve a level of abstraction to do with the command decisions that you as a player are making and the actual aesthetics of the game the aesthetics of the game you know if if someone has taken you know 
50 hours to paint up you know a beautiful uh 12 man unit of scots greys um there is a natural tendency in the player to want to use that unit Absolutely. and to want to command that unit because quite literally the eye is drawn to them that you know you they have they they achieve a kind of hmm, almost kind of personification of certain aspects of the warfare of the time and that draw the player to wanting to play that period in the first place mm -hmm. and it's very difficult for a rules writer to impose something on the player that overrides that and says no you've got to treat all these units as if they were just wooden blocks and for, from your point of view you know wellington's a, now wellington actually is a good example isn't he of a man like napoleon who uh, managed to remain aloof by and large from the guts and glory of the battlefield he managed to think of his men pretty much as pawns on a chessboard and so yes oh yes it's terribly sad isn't it that that unit's just lost 300 men right shove another unit in its place because that's not important to me what's important to me is winning the battle Right. That the actual suffering of the individual soldiers is something, obviously, this is something real generals have to do. That that the, the individual suffering taking place in that line of battle is something that he must remain aloof from. And as a war gamer, I think most of us actually find that quite difficult. That we have been brought up our our war gaming heritage, if you like has taught us that oh gosh you know oh my god you know the, the 40th foot has just taken 35 percent casualties oh my god that's one of my favorite units i spent weeks painting that unit right uh yeah, well that, we that that goes to show that you know on any completely painted units first outing it's going to get slaughtered yeah absolutely whilst the guys who've only got an undercoat on they they'll take 90 percent casualties and won't run away no <laughs> right that's <laughs> uh, so i think that um yeah that i i would agree with you that this um the, the realism aspect it, I, ideally should we say would focus on okay i'm being asked to play this game at the level of a first lieutenant or i'm being asked to play this game at the level of a brigade commander so i don't want to be faced with any decisions that go above my pay grade or with any decisions that are below my pay grade, that somehow those other decisions are in effect automated in some way for me, that they're card driven or dice driven or, you know, and this is the challenge for the rules writer, isn't it? Isn't it? How do you produce a set of rules that focuses in on a specific command level right, and right. divorces the player from decisions that are taking place on a different command level. Yes. That's difficult, isn't it? To say the least. I mean, that's saying that's difficult is is an, an understatement. You know, like I said <clears throat> just a just a few minutes ago, the you know, doctrinally speaking in the US Army, we teach our our leaders that they need to be aware of happenings two levels down. Yeah. As well as happenings two levels up. That doesn't yeah. mean you have any say in those decisions. Yeah. But you need to be aware of that. In our our orders writing process, our what's called the military decision making process, yeah. is is modeled 
largely on that. Games are gonna are going to hopefully allow you to be to a certain degree the platoon leader and the squad leader, and in some circumstances the the fire team leader also. Mm. Mm. But I, I think when you get too far down, you're starting to really miss the point. And, mm. and I guess a, a kind of a I guess taxonomy, for lack of a better term, is that I've come up with is process-oriented rules writing and mm. results-oriented rules writing. Mm. And I, I think people inject processes into their games under the auspices of making them more realistic, quote-unquote. Yeah. But what they end up doing is just gumming up the works because they're inserting decision-making processes that might not be appropriate for their command level or for their role. I mean, a, yeah. once you get to a battalion level, you've got a staff to take care of things yeah. like resupply and handling handling injured and handling POWs and yeah. and all these other all these other battlefield functions that, quite simply, you know, you're just trying to figure out how to get Company A to Objective Z and Company <clears throat> B and C to support that with Company D in reserve. Yep, and it's it's not an easy process, but it's a, and it's a difficult process. But I'm not sure it's necessarily one that needs to be modeled to that level of detail in a war game that's hopefully going to last, you know, anywhere from three to six hours. This is also, of course, where um, computer games have an advantage. Yes, because a computer game can pitch you in at precisely the level you're talking about and the artificial intelligence takes care of the other stuff right you know it will work out what the consequences of your decisions are on the guys lower down the chain and also what the reactions of the guys higher up the chain might be right. so you could you can play a computer game at the level of battalion commander let's say perfectly happily and perfectly reasonably and make those kind of decisions not having to worry that you need to personally need to have studied a rule set uh, that means that uh, this is the other thing isn't it that in a in a miniatures game or a board game uh, not only are you being asked to make the decisions appropriate to that level of game but you're also somehow having to enact the effects of your decisions further down the chain right so effectively you're 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 playing things out in a way that means that inevitably you become involved in things lower down the food chain that you wouldn't necessarily be involved in in reality right and I think this is where, you know, when it comes to playability versus uh, realism, playability has to take into account the fact that however the game designer might feel about the kind of uh, decision-making outcomes he wants to, the players to achieve, they are also involved in moving all the other pieces. Yes. They're also involved in... You know, that one of the great things, there's um, a chap 
uh, who died uh, was it last year or the year before Paddy Griffith right mm -hmm. who was a very famous military historian used to be a lecturer at Sandhurst and who was well known in the war games world not only because he wrote a couple of books about war gaming that were really interesting quite interesting academically apart from anything else but also he ran large-scale kind of Sandhurst type war games of the kind that you would use for training officers right so you would go into one of these games and there would be the first thing you would notice is there'd be as many umpires as players right because like the old-fashioned Prussian Kriegspiel, you know, which is what our miniatures wargaming is, is uh, you know, derived from, uh, where it was used for training, you know, Prussian officers, they, they would, basically you'd have the two sides in different rooms. That's the first thing, you know, yeah. they wouldn't even be in the same room, certainly not playing on the same table. The two sides in different rooms with an intermediary room where the chief umpire and all his assistants would be. And so everything that one side or the other could see or do would be filtered via the umpires. In the same way as a computer game filters your decision. So, you you know, you, unless you could in reality see over the top of that hill, you wouldn't necessarily know that the enemy was there at all, mm -hmm. right? Which is in many ways the ideal we all want to achieve. Right. And we'll come back to dead ground in realism, in our discussion of realism in a second. But... Paddy Griffiths used to do this kind of game and, and, and refight, you know, the invasion of Normandy or the, the British raids on Norway or all these kinds of things, you know, many, many different battles down the years. And they were uh, extraordinary things. Um, there's another guy who I, who's still alive, who I know, John retired now, Major General John Dravinkiewicz, known as DZ, who was the British Army's chief engineer in Bosnia. Um, and he's a lovely guy and I've been to a couple of his war games where, Christ, some of his war games are almost approaching that You, if you're commanding troops in one of his games, man, it's an exhausting process because you're being asked to justify your decision every step of the way, you oh, know, sure. and he will spring nasty surprises on you <laughs> he's the most active war games umpire I've ever encountered where you'll think, I mean for example I remember uh, we did uh, the Battle of Brandy Station from the American Civil War, which is the biggest cavalry battle in the American Civil War, right? And I was one of the co Confederate cavalry commanders <clears throat> with all these Union cavalry flooding towards me. You know, to say I was outnumbered was uh, an understatement. And so I was desperately sending off messages to my high command saying, please send me reinforcements. You know, I'm about to get swamped here. And he was a right swine, you know. I'd say, so where are my reinforcements? And he said, oh, did you send an order for uh, a request for reinforcements? Yes, I sent an order like five turns ago. Oh, really? Did you give it to me? Yes, I gave it to you. And he'd rummage in his pocket and say, oh, yes, here it is. Obviously, the, the courier's horse went lame. <laughs> right and that's the kind of thing he would do so and you couldn't argue with that because of course yes that's actually perfectly plausible and he knew exactly what he was doing he wasn't just being you know capricious because he didn't like you he'd made the decision in his head right actually oh let's see how henry copes as a commander right if that request for reinforcements doesn't get through for some time you know how will he cope with hanging on with the odds as I think at the end they were like four to one against me you know in this particular <laughs> sector of the battlefield and remarkably I survived but anyway 
so that kind of thing that, that that's a kind of war game right where you can achieve if you like the sort of command decision realism that you're talking about but this is where realistically when you've got a standard war game played to a set of rules between you know, two two or four friends and a normal club night in the space of a few hours probably expectations are too high i think many people's expectations of realism are going to be too high under those circumstances mm-hmm. um this is where if you really want realism you know the the use of the, the you know the the kindly volunteering of at least one or preferably more umpires to oversee the game really can then make a huge difference right because under those circumstances i mean there are even these big games where you won't even move the troops just like in the prussian kriegspiel you wouldn't actually touch the troops on the map the umpires would move the troops and mm-hmm. would make the decision of oh i think they've just hit a muddy road there they've had to slow down a bit and so on and so forth you know i i think this is an interesting thing that you you were talking about the kind of the processes that rules writers often and i you know, having written a set of rules myself I'd say they feel obliged to introduce to show that you know what yes I have thought about this right because what often happens is if you write a set of rules and you go through the think- thought process of thinking well you know okay I could say well if it's been raining for one day you've got to slow down by one inch if it's been raining for two days you've got to slow down by two inches and all that kind of stuff uh, but you would come to the conclusion that, do you know what, actually, it would all average out. And so infantry in line are going to blooming well move six inches, right? Okay. There will be players who buy your set of rules and come online onto a forum and say, oh, so, but what happens if it's been raining for an hour or two or three before the game? What's the effect on the movement? And what if the slope of that hill isn't 10 degrees? What if it's 15 degrees or 20 degrees or whatever? What's the effect on movement there? What if that hedge that you're saying troops would have trouble crossing has just been clipped the day before by Mrs. Blogs who lives next door? You know, (laughs) how... How far do you want to go with the micromanagement, the minutiae right, right. of the rules? Because there's always going to be someone out there who does that almost the button counting thing. Oh, I think you'll find that in April in Andalusia, the colour of the soil is. <laughs> <laughs> That's more of an oxide red, not so much a fire truck red. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> doesn't quite camouflage you quite as well does it Uh, well when they say grass green it's more of a it's more of a zoysia not so much a bermuda so there's uh, the rule writer i think i think we accept i I, you know i'm writing a column in war games illustrated these days and a couple of issues ago i wrote about one of the things that I think miniatures wargamers in particular do is that we tinker. We ne- almost never just buy a set of rules off the shelf oh, yes. and play it as written. Yeah, there's, right? there's there's a whole episode right there with house rules. Yeah. Tinkering, house rules, oh, name yeah. it what you want. Oh, yeah. Because, again, this comes back to what we were saying earlier about 
uh, what is history? It's, it's, it's whatever you happen to have read about the subject and how you've interpreted it. And therefore, if you think that the Panzer IV with a 75 LL gun should be slightly, you know, get slightly more luck against a T-34, 85 or whatever, you know, <clears throat> that's what you're going to... Also, I think it's going to be a minus one there. Yeah. The, T thirty four, you know. Well, is that with the cat? Is that with the cast turret, or with the uh, welded turret? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. There's the realism. I think is it's not. It's not only an impossible goal in miniatures wargaming. I'm not. I'm not even sure it's a desirable one, Joe. Right. You know, I think that re, re, all encompassing realism is so uh, unattainable because, you know, let's go back to the real basics as you were saying right at the beginning. You know, if I'm playing a medieval war game, you know, I've been a medieval, I've been a reenactor, I've been in the SCA. It's bad enough when people were smacking you around the back of the head with a wooden weapon, let alone if it's a sharp weapon that might take your head off, right? right. Uh, seeing someone uh, go down you know, having taken a heavy heavy blow with a wooden weapon is, you know, and and be genuinely injured is shocking enough. Let alone seeing their actual guts spilling on the ground in front of you. Right now, I don't have to say this to you know you or any other uh, individual who's seen real combat and seen the elephant. You know, my uh, huge respect. Um, and as a war gamer, I I don't want that anyway. It's Right. I come back to what I said earlier. It's a game. This is a pastime. I do this for relaxation and enjoyment. I can be passionate about it and, if you like, competitive about it in the same way as you might be passionate and competitive with any other sport or game. Um, I think that that actually, for me, the the playability outweighs the realism argument um there are some rule sets that come close okay i mean we've mentioned one commands and colors where it the realistic aspect of commands and colors <clears throat> is that you are asked to make decisions at a certain level of command and you do feel divorced from i'm not having to bother about well, I say that other than in the, the Napoleonic version of the game, of course, where you do have to make the decision to form square or not. Right. And, and not just not just the decision to form square, but you have to balance that against, you know, you're going to, you're going to limit your options yeah. tactically because you have to take a card out of your, a command yeah. card out of your hand and set it aside. And yeah. so you're, it limits you quite considerably. And, it does. And uh, the, something that uh, Neil had mentioned uh, when I was talking to the to him and the two mics was that it's, you know, from a board gamer's perspective, that's that's resource management. Yeah. You know, it's a resource management angle with with the command cards. And yeah, um, <clears throat> yeah and I, I wonder if that might not that decision to put that card on the reserve or on the square card or whatever you want to call it, yeah. if that might not model the upper level commander paying maybe closer attention to that particular sector of the of the battlefield 
and <coughs> maybe he's not seeing the other opportunities as they arise in other places? Well, I suppose that's how you could interpret it. Yeah. Um, I mean, one of the one of the arguments I have with commands and colors is that often, sadly, I have come away from from games of CNC feeling as though, do you know what? Either I won or lost that game, but it wasn't because of me. It was because I either had a, an amazing hand of cards or a lousy hand of cards. Uh, I found uh, that. It can happen. I mean, I have, you know, I, I don't want to overstate this, but I was, probably the majority of the time, I've had games of commands and colours where it's quite balanced. Oh yeah, oh you had a bad run of cards, then you had a good run of cards, da da da, da and it kind of worked out. But there have been a, a significant number of games I've had against opponents of similar ability to myself, where I thought, oh, do you know what? Well, I'm not sure about that, uh, and that's where the now is that the realism of the game interfering with the playability or is it just the mechanics of the game the mechanisms of the game interfering with the playability it's an interesting point the other game that we mentioned earlier uh chain of command <clears throat> oh yeah with the which, dice yeah which my friend guy and i are just about getting to grips with now after something like 10 games <laughs> because we keep finding that Oh, we missed that rule out. You know, there's a, in the last game, uh, I was playing the Germans against this guy who was playing the French defenders, and I, I had a really, really hard time. And I was thinking, this just doesn't feel right. I know there's something missing here. And then Guy gave the rules a close read through. He said, yeah, I can tell you what's probably missing is covering fire. You should have been allowed to put down covering fire right. as you were advancing. <clears throat> so no wonder your troops were kind of getting slaughtered by me as they were trying to advance to contact. Well, yeah, that's going to make a huge difference, right? <laughs> <laughs> yes, being unable to make your guys keep their heads down, you know, that, that's not good. Um, but I suppose... Chain of Command is the game that's come closest so far to something to anything I've experienced where the 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 game designer Rich Clark has said right this game is deliberately pitched at this level of command and therefore the decisions you make reflect what a commander at that level you know a second lieutenant or whatever would be forced to make in real life in World War Two, um, and it's because, as you say, the 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 troops beneath they're not. Yes, there are individual troops, but they're divided into fire teams and that kind of stuff. And so the the whole ethos is to do with <clears throat> excuse me infantry warfare of that period, covering a a fairly small patch of ground and a defined period of time with fairly limited weaponry options at your disposal I mean given that most of the time you'd be lucky if you get kind of 10 support points something of that nature mm -hmm. 10 to 12 support points you're talking about maybe a couple of vehicles um, fairly low level and I'm, we're playing early war so we're talking like Panzer 38T or a very early Panzer 3 or 4 something like that uh, maybe a Kubelwagen you know a couple of machine gun teams that kind of stuff so you've got limited resources, but also a limited objective. 
And within that framework, I, it's, I've got to admit, it's working pretty well. Yes. And this is where uh, it's important for our discussion because Rich's, <clears throat> I mean, the, the, the two fat lardies byline is something play the history, not the game, isn't it? I think that's the rules, their yeah. motto. Play the period, not the rules. That's it. Play the period, not the rules. Um, and that's kind of that's interesting on two levels. First of all, because it's quite a bold claim. Secondly, however, I certainly feel that when you're starting out, I've never been more conscious of a rule set. <laughs> you know, <laughs> right? I've been going. I've been conscious all the time of oh, right, yeah. How do you do that? And checking it out. And you're very conscious that it is the rolls of the dice that are dictating what you're able to do. You know, you have your five command dice or whatever it is most of the time one of those is going to be say a, a six which basically means the opponent gets the next turn there might be a five in there that basically gets a pip on your command dice so effectively you're left with three dice with which you can then do something which means on a kind of turn you have to be careful because it's phase by phase the, 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 their terminology a right. turn means something very different to what it means in a normal war game yes right a, a turn can consist of many in fact consecutive opposing phases but um so you're very conscious that man i've got three dice i can so i can only give three sets of orders so basically i can my second lieutenant can give an order and then maybe i've got you know a couple of two so a couple of weapons teams can do something and then it's the other guy's turn so um does that make it more realistic jay well i think I well i think what you're talking about is something i've been wanting to come to grips with and Folks, if you've got a if you've got small children listening, cover their ears. We're talking about the F word, and that <laughs> and that's friction. <laughs> and you know, it's I think it's an important point. I I forget who said it, but they it actually might have been you, Henry. If there's not friction, then it's not a war game. Right. And sounds like something Rich Clark would say. Yeah, actually, I think it was Rich on on uh, Meeple's, but uh, yeah, that's. That's an excellent way of introducing friction, and I think maybe one of the frustrations from well, there's another F word right there, frustration, with commands and colors is you're effectively introducing two levels of friction between your dice and the cards. Yep. And you know, it's something I've struggled with in writing my own rules because I like the idea of inserting friction into games, and you know, I thought, well, what type of activation and movement do I want to have? Do I want to have card-based activation? Oh, yes, that's that's great because mm. you know you're not quite sure who's going to go next, and you're not quite sure if everyone's going to get to go. And then I thought, well, I also like randomized movement because when you're actually are on the on the <coughs> field, when you're actually on the field, you don't know if you're going to be able to go as far as you think you should. But then I started thinking, well, it's going to be pretty frustrating if. I can only move one unit, and then it only moves two inches because I rolled my 2d6 and came up yeah. snake eyes. <clears throat> and um, I think that there's a, you know, just like anything else in our hobby, there's a balance that can be found with friction. But yeah. where <clears throat> you insert it and how that interacts with the decisions you're making is going gonna, is gonna to play a big role in that. And I think, and I think Chain of Command does that pretty effectively, you're always going to have some type of randomized 
unless you're doing a Kriegspiel type thing or uh, the the last guest I had, Howard Whitehouse, he talked about a, a game that uh, he played in with Patty Griffith where basically you're crawling around on the floor moving your one unit around and then when you yeah. come up against another unit you kind of just talk it out with the opponent to figure out what happens and right. you're kind of relying on your your historical reading and your experience as a war gamer to get you through but yeah. you know where where does that friction take place if i'm if i'm playing a game where i'm a say a company commander <clears throat> do i want to worry about rolling to make sure that my loader in the tank chooses the right type of ammunition. Mm. Not necessarily. I just want to know what the effects of his fire are. You know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And uh, so it's and you don't want to pile too much on because it just becomes you know, you apply too much friction and well, like in physics, you put on too much friction and things come to a stop. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it's 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 interesting to it's an interesting exercise as a rules writer to figure out where to inject uh, friction, but also how much. Yeah, uh, this is a good point. In my own shot scene and stone rules, I decided to introduce friction <clears throat> in the command rules. Yes, because I've been playing um, a fair amount of uh, black powder and war master. Uh, in the lead up to me writing my own rules and there's some interesting ideas you know Rick Priestley uh, actually I think that the Warmaster rules he wrote starting with fantasy and then ancients and all it went were very conceptually very interesting they kind of managed to abstract certain things very well one of the things was to do with where you had a series of command roles where you know, if you rolled a certain amount of thing uh, uh, on the dice, you could go, 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 and go again, kind of thing. And so you would get these situations, and it can still happen in Black Powder, Hail Caesar, where the opponent kind of sits there thinking, well, why did I bother to turn up? Mm -hmm. <laughs> All this stuff is just kind of happening to me because he's had a brilliant series of die rolls. Uh, now, there are certain things that you can do automatically when the enemy gets within a certain distance but there are still instances and i can remember it happening where uh let's just say it becomes very episodic and one player can start feeling like you know what i'm i'm a bit fed up with this so i thought hard about that and about my experience with commands and colors and stuff when i was writing my own shots in the stone rules because i th this is where the playability thing came in for me where I didn't want to have a situation where people were playing with my set of rules and one one guy was sitting there going oh Christ you know I wish I hadn't bothered to turn up you know I can't retaliate in any way there's nothing I can do here it's all just kind of happening to me and my generalship doesn't matter which is why I did the idea where there was the command role where there was kind of a, a uh, various, you know, uh, uh, degrees of variation, ranging from yes, you might have a, a really good bonus happen to you, or you might have, you know, it might be fairly negative on you, but you can always do something. Right. You're never left in a position where, as a player, well, there's nothing I can do because I just thought I know if I'm in that situation, it makes me feel miserable, it makes me feel stupid. I want to feel like well, there's at least something I can do that can positively influence the outcome of 
my command decisions. Right. Most of the time, those die rolls come out in the average range, so you can do what you're expected to do, right? Um, but it just gives that little frisson of, oh, it might go better than expected. Oh, God, um, yeah, I'm, I might hit my, find I've marched my troops into a quagmire. Because this is the other thing, obviously, when we lay out a war games table, it's, you know, it's as flat as a billiard table, as flat as a pool right. table. And we can't possibly represent every hump and bump and lump in the ground or clump of bushes or whatever that you know, as an infantryman, in reality could save your life. Or conversely, could you ex could expose you to enemy fire at a time that you really don't want to be exposed to enemy fire? But on a on a war games table, you know, unless you're prepared to sc lovingly sculpt and terrain every right. time you play, you know, it's not going to happen. So there are, I thought, you know, well, there are going to be times when a, a unit of infantry is marching forward across what looks like perfectly flat open ground, and in fact, it turns out to be a bit marshy, or you know, really stupid things like it turns out there's a rabbit warren there and there's guys twisting their ankle all over the place. Mm -hmm. Or you, you know, you go to have a cavalry charge there and the horses shy away because it's a particular sort of gravel that frightens them because that's what horses do, you know. Right. Uh, and so I decided to go for a kind of generic variable movement and effect die roll as you know because i know you've played my rules that are are simple to remember and quick to play and people pretty much get used to the fact that you know if the die comes out between you know seven and nine you know exactly what it's going to be so you don't have to think too hard about it oh occasionally there might be a double one oh occasionally there might be a double six. Oh yes remind me oh gosh that's all these good things oh dear that's all those bad things but more or less the player retains the majority of the control of their troops right. because again when we when we come back to realism one of the things that i remember from when i was starting wargaming all back to the veteran wargamer back in the old days we used to play simultaneous moves with written orders mm -hmm. right we didn't have alternate moves. I mean, alternate moves really, wow, that's come about relatively recently in gaming history, probably since the advent of Games Workshop and, and Warhammer Fantasy Battle and stuff. It, and yeah, it was it was from the kind of 19, mid 1980s onwards, I would suppose, that you start to see far more games being played where it's I go, you go, I go, you go, sometimes with a certain amount of interruption and interaction. But back in the day, you know, we would sit there and we'd have a sheet of paper, the names of units down the side and the move number across the top, and we would write orders for each unit for each turn. So advance, you know, advance half a move and fire, wheel right, charge, whatever. And I still feel that that produced some of the most, in inverted commas, realistic games I ever played because it introduced surprise. Right. Because nowadays in an I go you game, well, obviously, well, you see what your opponent does 
and then you react to it and then he reacts to what you've done and you react to what he's done and so on it's a very much kind of an action reaction kind of system that most games are played with nowadays now i've played my own shot steel and stone rules that way i go you go and i wrote them so that they could be played that way because i know that's what most people are used to nowadays people can't be fagged to write written orders right which i think is sad well there's but I've also th there are some rules out there and some relatively popular rules that still kind of do that full thrust for one which for my money even though it's gosh almost <clears throat> 30 years old now is still yeah. one of the better spaceship games out there yeah. and of course uh wings of war wings of glory with yeah. their card system where everyone yeah. picks their moves and then also uh you know you've got uh x-wing which is a which is a successor to wings of war yeah. you know they basically you're doing simultaneous orders yeah and, and then and how you go about fantastic. adjudicating that yeah and they're they're all great and you know, I, I think I might, with the project that I'm working on currently, which is, you know, my old hammer skirmish uh, idea, you know, yeah. I might <clears throat> might introduce something like that. You know, it's and, it, and it's not that it keeps people guessing, but you need to be proactive as opposed to reactive. Yeah, and yeah. you need to really be anticipatory, I guess is, is, the, yeah. is the right word. And... Yeah. Uh, Yes. I used to love writing orders because it really I felt like you actually got much more realistic generalship because if you wanted well first of all you could decoy the enemy right. you, it was entirely possible I mean I can remember some of the maneuver you know, I, I, you know I think my generalship was at its best back in those days that I got really good at sort of giving the impression that, oh, yes, my units are marching over here to the left, and then suddenly switch right, you know, send the cavalry hurtling in, turn the guns around, blast away a section of the enemy line that they really weren't expecting, and the whole thing would then crack apart, and in you go. Just like, you know, when you read accounts of the Battle of Austerlitz or Marengo or whatever, you know, the those hist exciting historical moments where a great commander was able to take an enemy by surprise, um, and that's something I find is really hard to you know, you try doing that in Commands and Colors, right? Yeah. You know, it's first of all, in Commands and Colors, is all going to be one of my pet hates, Commands and Colors. Oh, yes, the cards in your hand. Oh, yes, move two units on your left flank. Yeah, I've got nothing on my left flank. Yeah. My left flank is empty, right? <laughs> yes, uh, you can advance all your light infantry. I mean, I've got an army that's got no light infantry. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, right. that's that. Well, you just kind of feel like that's wasted. And the also the way that commands and colors, for example, makes a game very episodic. It's happening here. It's happening there. It's happening here. It's happening there. It's very difficult to maintain a consistent, uh, you know, advance on the right flank kind of thing. Now, mm -hmm. I suppose someone would say a game's design. Ah, but that's friction. But is it necessary friction? You know, when you, when I read historical accounts of, of the great tactical and grand tactical maneuvers that took place on the battlefield, these people knew what they were doing. They had staff officers. There was a chain of command that meant that if he issued an order that 
you know, uh, Derlon's division will advance on the right flank. You know, barring something pretty catastrophic, it would advance on the right flank. Now, you wouldn't necessarily know whether it would be successful when it got there, but at least it would carry on advancing. Whereas in something like Commands and Colours, man, yeah, we're just going to stop dead for 10 <laughs> turns because you haven't got any more cards for that sector. Right? <laughs> You've been there. You know this. <laughs> that is an absolutely correct assertion. <laughs> I was just thinking about the last game I played. It was, it was the first run with my Commands and Colors fantasy project. And mm -hmm. just by the way things turned out, I didn't have a single Skaven on my left. <laughs> I had five cards in my hand, and three of them said such and such units on the left. Son yeah, of yeah. A... <laughs> yeah, so, absolutely. So that resulted in a quick. All right, even if it doesn't say so, if if you don't have any anybody in that sector, you can still move one unit somewhere else. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah. Oh, I I know what you're talking about, but at the same time, you can get in two games in an evening. Yes, and this is the other thing, you know, realism versus playability, because this is, you know, a, a lot of the things that you've described that people introduce thinking it's realism, like these micro processes, right. uh, you know, the how thick is the mud on the field at Waterloo at 4pm, you know, um, all they do is slow the game down and make it less playable. There's a lot more kind of sitting around kind of, oh, God, you've got to do that. I mean, one of the things in the, in the old days of simultaneous moves, there were in particular, well, two rule sets in particular, uh, a guy called Bruce Quarry, who's very famous for writing, first of all, the Airfix Guide to Napoleonic Wargaming and then Napoleon's Campaigns in Miniature, uh, where the first thing that was interesting was that the, the miniature scale, and he wasn't the first person to do this, the miniature scale was one miniature represented 33 real men, mm -hmm. right? Man, I got to know my 33 times table pretty damn well, <laughs> right? Because also, you, the casualties caused wouldn't cause whole figure casualties. It would literally be, oh yes, uh, this artillery battery firing at 725 yards, uh, this da 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 da. Oh yes, I've inflicted uh, 73 casualties. So it's like, <laughs> all right, 73. Okay, so that's two 33s, that's 66 leaving. Oh, so that's, and make a note of the seven casualties left over. So the next time that unit received casualties, you'd add that seven in to what you'd taken it. Man. The bookkeeping was incredible. The other thing was like the morale tests were extraordinary. You know, oh yes, right, it's uh, it's it's a Tuesday, so that's minus one. <laughs> they the, the shoes are a bit leaky. That's another minus one. Oh, they had sausages for breakfast. That's plus two. You know, I'm I'm exaggerating, of course, but there would right. be this list of pluses and minuses that was like a page long. That you know when I. When I was writing my own shots to Stone Rules, I, I I did go through the process of can I just eliminate all these entirely? Now the answer is well, yes, you can, but people will think, well, that's not realistic. Right, you know, right. They see a set of rules that has none of these factors, <clears throat> you know, taken more than 10% casualties. Uh, uh, does it have friendly support and that kind of stuff? People will just think, well, that's wrong. You can't have a set of 
you know, horse and musket era rules without at least some of these. So then it was a matter of, right, well, how many of these must I reintroduce to give that balance between showing that, you know, I have thought about this, guys. I'm not stupid. I have got a history degree, you know. Right. I have read the books. I do know this stuff. <clears throat> but at the same time, trying to eliminate as many as possible to speed up play. So this is, again, where that, you know, realism playability balance comes in is that what where's that balance point between historical detail sufficient to show that you've understood that the players want the flavor of the period mm -hmm. whatever that might be you know that's another discussion probably but whatever the flavor of the period is but without bogging the game down in minutiae and uh unless you have um something like a completely card driven game like commands and colors um and you know what is a very clever system with those battle dice in commands and colors you know that is a very neat system that just like you know if you want to kill, kill enemy infantry you've got to roll infantry symbols on your dice keeps it nice and simple doesn't it right. um but in an in a standard miniatures war game i think that's where the vast and this will probably helping to draw the discussion to a close after a couple of hours isn't it? Uh, that's what people are looking for on that barometer from it's just a game to oh my god this is phenomenally realistic I feel like I'm actually there what people want is that sweet spot somewhere in the middle that makes them feel like the game looks like the period it's intending to portray and it feels like the period it's intending to portray that you know from the reading people have done oh yes i can believe a battle like that could actually have taken place in you know 1750 or whatever it was that feels right that the prussian army behaved as i would have expected it to behave the austrians behaved as i would expect them to behave uh that the artillery was powerful but not too powerful and so on and so forth um and at the end of the day, Jay, I think that's kind of in this realism versus playability uh, kind of discussion. That's as much as you can hope for. And this is the other thing, going back to Commands and Colours momentarily, that even though Guy and I have really, you know, struggled with those chain of command rules in our early war games, even, and even though we've got it wrong sometimes, and even though... Um, it's been frustrating at times. It's felt close enough to that sweet spot for us to think, well, let's have another go. Right. Because because I think that's it, isn't it? If you play a game and you feel like, whoa, that is way off what I would consider to be the sweet spot, you just don't bother playing it again. Um, and even Commands and Colors, bless its heart, for all the complaints I have, why do I go back to it? Because, by and large, you can get a, a game would take at most, what, a couple of hours? Oh, at most an hour. An hour to two hours, let's say. Um, and secondly, certainly for the ancients, Commander Colors Ancients, I'm still not sure about the Napoleonics yet, but Commander Colors Ancients, I do come away feeling that yeah, I suppose that is a plausible outcome for a battle between the Romans and the Barbarians or the Greeks and the Persians or whatever. That, However, I feel like the game mechanisms might occasionally have got in the way. 
overall, did it feel like an ancient's battle? Yeah, I suppose it did, actually. I feel as though the balance between the heavy infantry and the light infantry and the medium cavalry and the whatever is about right. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I suppose that's what, you know, the test of a, of a game, the games that you keep going back to are probably the ones where they hit that sweet spot between realism and playability the closest. You know, <clears throat> we can't expect them always to hit the gold in the middle of the target. But if they're in the kind of you know, seven to nine range most of the time, I think we at least forgive a rule set enough for us to want to play it again. Absolutely. Absolutely. I think that's uh, that's really what any what anybody wants to get out of a rule set. Um, I probably got about, oh, eight or nine plays of Shot, Steel, and Stone. And you know, I, I want to get back to it at some point. Exactly how that how that happens, I'm not sure yet. Maybe it'll be with six millimeter Napoleonics because I've started to collect some six millimeter Napoleonics. Cool. Um, but uh, yeah, I want to get back to that. Um, you know, you mentioned the the activation rolls, and I really I'm really intrigued by that system. And I got to say, that's probably my favorite part of of those rules. Oh, thank you. Um, I, was, I was the first time out was with my brother Chris, and we were kind of you know going through the rules and okay, well we do this, and that's that's pretty interesting. I wonder how that's going to work out in the <laughs> very first command roll, box cars. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, then my brother, then Chris rolled a, another six, so <laughs> wow. right off the gate, there everybody's moving extra and shooting extra and hacking extra Fantastic. and everything. So it's yeah, it's it's definitely one of those things, and that I think if it feels right, you know, like you said, if it feels right, you keep going. And there are plenty of rules out there that, for me at least, they do get bogged down in the minutia, and they do take you know forty five minutes to an hour for a turn, and you're <coughs> and you're yeah. sat there doing next to nothing, and you know maybe that. Maybe that has something to do with why, uh, and this is a different, this is a topic for a different podcast altogether. But you know, the you go, I go is is going away, and integrated turns are coming are yeah. more prevalent because people <clears throat> don't want to just sit there for an hour while you know <clears throat> someone plays, you know, basically plays the game without them. Absolutely. I mean, even when I was writing shots in stone, there were certain things where I thought, well, there has to be. For example, cavalry charges and counter charges. Right. There has to be times when things move or can happen out of the normal sequence because otherwise we're just barbaric. It wouldn't happen that way. Mm-hmm. This comes down to another aspect of realism. Standing orders, you know, that, that troops of all types would be trained to act in a particular way in a given set of circumstances. Right. Cavalry, their raison d'etre is to charge. If they're caught at the halt, they're dead. <laughs> so cavalry are, are trained. You know, if, if if you see enemy approaching you, you charge them. On those very few occasions where they were stupid enough not to, like uh, when the British infantry actually 
charged and defeated the French cavalry. Was it Min the Battle of Minden? I think it was in the 1750s. <clears throat> the French cavalry were caught at the halt and like, oh, what do we do? Mm -hmm. Because the British infantry was so aggressive and they charged the French cavalry. You know, so much for the vaunted French heavy cavalry. So you know, or you should know as a rules writer, that cavalry should always be given the option of countercharging. Now, there might be a slight delay before they spot the enemy cavalry coming towards them, which is what I have in my rules. But, you know, it would be unreasonable to say, well, they've just got to sit there and take it. But I, I have played rule sets where that is the case, that, oh, well, the, it's the enemy's turn. They've made the decision to charge you, so you have been caught at the halt. Well, you know, that's when both realism and playability go out the window. Right. So that's, you know, I think this is, and, and I think the other thing is, certainly when it came to shot, steel and stone for me, in the end, I decided the best I can do is just write the set of rules that I want to play, mm -hmm. you know, taking into account all the war games influences and all the historical influences I've had since, you know, 1970, whatever. <clears throat> actually if i distilled all those experiences together what's the game that comes out of it and that shot steel and stone so and i think even in the book i said look this rule set of rules isn't perfect it's deliberately derivative so that someone who for example has played black powder before isn't going to go oh my god this is completely unrecognizable i haven't got a clue how to begin here right you know the whole point was no you are going to find that it's a set of rules that's a bit like this and a bit like that and that's the point, you know. I wanted, I wanted to be a real set of rules that hopefully people can play after they've, they've read the book. And you know, so when people like yourself tell me you've played my rule set, that's fantastic. Uh, obviously, the other thing is that it, it did go through the most brutal play testing it could possibly have. The the huge games that I organise mm -hmm. up in Aiton in Yorkshire, you know, with like. 10 people aside <clears throat> who brought all their many hundreds of figures for these vast battles they were going to be pretty cross with me if this rule set i'd written didn't work straight out of the box so that, the first time was pretty terrifying but actually you know that's been really pleasing that we've been able to use the rules now for what, half a dozen times in these enormous games and add quirky things to it for the colonial <laughs> games like jizzales and naphtha, th naphtha throwers and God flaming pigs what. I understand yeah. <laughs> flaming pigs this is what happens when you're running a game someone Henry would it be alright if I brought flaming pigs <laughs> <laughs> alright then you come up with a rule and hope that it <laughs> I'm gonna say right now, this is this is the veteran war gamer stamp of approval on any game that has flaming pigs. <laughs> All other things being considered, well, put it this way: on on my rating scale, whatever that ends up being, flaming pigs is an automatic plus one. Uh, if nothing else, there's plenty of crackling available after the game. There you go. <laughs> Anyway, Jay, my friend, I think we'd probably better wrap up, hadn't we? Well, coincidentally, a, a reference to fried pork skin is... is <laughs> that, that, that automatically ends the turn. And, uh, <laughs> and, it's, and it's been... To say it's been a delight has, is, a, is a gross understatement. Thank you so much for coming on the show today. I really do appreciate it. Um, oh, thank you, Jay. It's been a real pleasure. I really enjoyed it. Yeah, so what's the, what's the best way to find out what Henry Hyde's up to? 
Oh, goodness me. Well, uh, people can find me in all sorts of places, innumerable places, can't they, Jay? Um, I suppose uh, there's my wargaming blog, uh, henrys-wargaming.co.uk, which is also wargamingjournal.com as well, if people wanted to use that. Uh, you can find me on Facebook. I'm running my Battle Games page on Facebook. I've got an at Battle Games Twitter account. Uh, also, I'm setting up my little publishing company, Gladius Publications. So uh, I think I'm at Gladius Books on Twitter and uh, GladiusPublications.com is the website, which I'm, I've only just started building, really. And then for people who are interested in writing and graphic design and that kind of stuff, I have my HenryHyde.co.uk uh, website uh, and at Henry underscore underscore Hyde. Uh, on Twitter, <clears throat> because I know that you pop up there from time to time as well, don't you, Jake? Because you're interested in uh, pursuing creative things. Yes. So yes. It, if people are interested in kind of bits of inspiration and insights into my life as a writer and graphic designer, that's where people will find that kind of thing. Very good. Once again, Henry, thank you very much. I look forward to speaking to you again. You too, Jay. Thanks ever so much. It's been a real pleasure. Absolutely. And folks out there listening, as always, if if the gaming you're you're doing isn't fun, you make it fun. That is all. The Veteran Wargamer is copyright Jay Arnold 2017. Be sure to leave a review on iTunes. Discussion on the blog at theveteranwargamer.blogspot.com. Music courtesy of bensound.com.